How's everybody doing? Man, I'm usually sleeping right now. I need to wake up. <laughs> With all creation, I sing. Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Who else is singing those words right now? The angels in heaven. We just join the angels in the chorus that goes on in heaven throughout eternity. It's awesome to think about. Okay. We've begun a deep dive into Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5 to 7, which historically we've called this part of Scripture the Sermon on the Mount. I call it the greatest sermon ever preached. As we've uh, been talking lately, Jesus came to the world to show us how to walk. Because if you think about what was lost in Eden, it was that. It was, it was walking with God. It was walking like God. And as a result of losing that, our world went dark. It fell back into chaos. It became broken in every way for the simple reason that humanity no longer walked with God or walked like God. But God's whole plan to redeem the world, redeem it, renew it, because he so loves the world, began when he said to Abraham these simple words, Abraham, get up and walk. And he's calling the human race to, to walk, to walk again with God. In fact, very soon after that, he says to Abraham, walk before me. Uh, it, it's, it's like a, a parent with their little one-year-old, teaching their one-year-old how to walk. And God is teaching the human race how to walk, how to walk with God, how to walk like God. And later he's going to instruct uh, Abraham's family how to walk, how to walk with God, how to walk like God through this. And sadly, too many Christians call this law, but God's people call it Torah. Torah means instruction. It's God's owner's manual on how to be human, how to be like God, how to walk as God walks. That's why Jesus came to the world. Yes, he came to die, to be resurrected, to ascend, but he also came to this world to show us how to walk, which is why he said to people, come follow me, literally in that language, come walk after me so you can become like me. And that's our theme verse for this year, 1 John 2, verse 6. If anyone claims to be in Christ, he or she must walk as Jesus walked. If you want to know why Crossroads exists as a church, it's not just to conduct services. It's to be a community of people who are learning to walk as Jesus walked. And the Sermon on the Mount is one of the most succinct places in the whole Bible where we can not only understand how Jesus walked the face of the earth, but how he called us to walk like him so we could be the salt of the earth. Okay, we're going to push into some heavy stuff tonight. Uh, let's stand for the reading of God's Word in Matthew chapter 5, beginning verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, you shall not kill. It's the sixth commandment, as we understand it. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother or his sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. 
Anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them and come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who has taken you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. This is God's word. You can be seated. So this is uh, the first of six occurrences in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is going to uh, use this phraseology where he says, you have heard it was said, but I say to you. No one gasped tonight when I read that. Um, I don't know if you're just deep off in thought, thinking about if the Lions right now are winning or losing. Obviously, you're here right now because you don't care about the Lions. Uh, this is the don't care about the Lions part of Crossroads right here. Um, I can almost guarantee you that Jesus' audience would have gasped probably every time they heard him say, you've heard it was said, but I say to you. Because in Jesus' day, first century rabbis, they would quote each other. They they would say, um, this rabbi said this, or this rabbi said that, to support their interpretation. But this emphatic, but I say to you, is Jesus speaking conclusively on this matter? End of debate. He's literally speaking with the authority of God. Or when Messiah comes, they believe that Messiah would speak with this kind of conclusive authority. And I want to put this quote before you because this was in their thinking in their day about Messiah. Uh, When the Messiah comes, he will not only correctly interpret all the problematic verses of scripture, he will also correctly interpret all the individual words of each verse. And when Messiah comes, he will also correctly interpret all the individual letters of each word. In fact, when he comes, he will also even interpret all the white spaces between the letters and the words. If you want to know why Jesus was crucified, it wasn't because of his miracles. In fact, after some of his miracles, they wanted to make him king. He was crucified for blasphemy, for speaking as God, as he's doing in the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it was said, but I say to you. And he's speaking with that kind of authority, like he's God himself. In fact, look at the conclusion of this sermon. Uh, Let's go to the end of it in in Matthew chapter 7. I think I have this on PowerPoint as well. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law, not as their rabbis. Now let's look at his interpretation of, of the sixth commandment here. Thou shalt not murder. Remember, Jesus 
just got done saying, if you were here last week, I did not come to abolish the Torah. So he, he's not replacing the sixth commandment with his new commandment. He's simply interpreting it. He's giving the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill, its full meaning. So that, not only that we can understand it, but so that we can fulfill this part of Torah. So we can walk it out the way God intended. Now, murder is, is, is not a, a difficult thing to interpret. It's simply the act of killing someone. In the Bible, this is not a lesser commandment. I mean, this falls in the bucket of the greater commandments. In fact, it is probably the greatest thou shalt not in the text. Because from cover to cover, God's word speaks of the intrinsic worth, the infinite preciousness of human life. How we're to value it, protect it, nurture it at all costs. And from cover to cover, starting with Cain who kills his brother Abel, Moses who kills his oppressors, David who kills his friend Uriah, Paul who kills Christians, the Bible again and again speaks of murder as this grievous evil with severe divine judgment. Which is why Jesus says here, Whoever murders will be subject to that judgment. And, and he, again, even in this place, this is not a subjective thing that he's saying. This, too, is rooted in God's word. Uh, Numbers 35, 30, and 31. Uh, th this is what it says. Anyone who kills a person is to be put to death as a murderer only on the testimony of witnesses, but no one is to be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. There had to be more than one witness, but when there was more than one witness, uh, that person, as it says, the life of a murderer who deserves to die, they are to be put to death. And so courts were established to bring justice to all murderers where there are at least two witnesses. So here's what people did in Jesus' day, starting with the Pharisees. They could look at the sixth commandment and say, I haven't killed anyone. Check. As to this part of Torah, I'm faultless. And Jesus right now is going to shatter this kind of self-righteousness. Because righteousness, according to Jesus, according to God, is deeper than just our behavior. It's our heart. God does not want just right behavior. He wants our hearts to be right. He first wants heart righteousness. 
This is why God in another place in the text says, I, I, I look to and fro for a heart that's completely devoted to me. It's why when he tells Israel to get circumcised, which is this outward sign that Israel belongs heart and soul to God, God still will say about this. He says, you know, I, I really don't even care about that outward mark. He says, I want your hearts to be circumcised. He wants heart righteousness. And so if, if righteousness begins in our heart, then so does unrighteousness. So therefore, murder, which is more than just a behavior, it's more than just something that we do with our hands, it's something that we first do in our hearts. Jesus says, let's look in that heart place. Let's find out what else comes out of that same place that causes someone to murder. And that's why he goes into saying what he says in verses 22 to 23, but I tell you, if anyone is angry with his brother or sister, they'll be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother or sister, Raka, is questionable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. What? What he's saying here is this. We actually kill people with our anger. We kill people with our words. Because where does this anger, where do these words come from? Well, later Jesus will say, he says, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. The heart, it, 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 it's the same place. That causes us to kill someone with our hands, that we kill someone with our anger, that we kill someone with our words. And Jesus gives us two examples here. Uh, he first uses an Arabic term, raka. Um, you know, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but a lot of our swear words actually come from the Brits. For, for some reason, you can say the same word in, in French and it sounds sophisticated. Uh, <laughs> and, and we can thank the Brits for, you know, those words that we can use on the golf course, right? Um, I'm sorry. Uh, Raka is, is, is one of these slang words in, the, in, in Jesus' day, and, and it was simply calling somebody a nobody. Much like maybe our word today, loser. You loser. Raka. That's Raka. The other example Jesus gives here is, is a Greek word, and it, it's, it's the word moros, which is translated here in our text, you fool. It's where we get the word moron. It's like calling someone an idiot. I mean, how many times do these things come out of our mouths? And Jesus is here saying that words like this, they kill people because they wound, they damage, they destroy. Have you thought about your words? Listen to this proverb from, from Proverbs 12, verse 18. The words of the reckless pierce like swords. That was their weapon. Our words can be weapons to destroy someone, 
But the tongue of the wise brings healing. What this proverb is telling us is that our words carry enormous power. Have you ever thought about why this is? James, who's Jesus' brother, by the way, his earthly brother, who writes that book in the Bible, James, uh, also deals with this in James chapter 3. Um, he says, the tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue, here's the main point. This is why our, our, our words have enormous power. With the tongue, we praise our God and our Father. With it, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. I mean, one of the primary ways in which we are like God and not like the rest of creation is words. I mean, God is a speaking God. He talks. And, and, and just as his words have enormous power, I mean, just think about the power behind God's words. It was through his words that the whole world came into existence. He spoke the world into existence. It's by words that he made us. It's by his words. And then his word literally became flesh. And, and, and was fleshed out in the person of Christ. It's, it's how God is remaking us, how God is repairing us, reconciling us, how he's repairing the whole world. I mean, think about even when, when Jesus spoke to a storm, be still. When he said to the tomb, Lazarus, come forth. Those were just words, but there were there was power behind those words and the Bible tells us that we're made like God in one of the primary ways that, that we are like God and different from the rest of creation. God gave us the power of speech. We speak. We have this capacity to hear words, understand words, express words. I mean, just imagine right now life without words. We can't. I mean, we, we can't even live without speaking. We can't live without hearing words, writing words, reading words. That's why we live in such a wordy world. Radio, TV, internet, email, Facebook, blogs, texts, books, billboards. I mean, words are everywhere. Words are what make us human, which is why we need words, why we use words, why we need to express things in words. It's how we know each other. We, we know each other through words. We know God through his word. And in this, we are like God. And like God, our words have enormous power to bring life, to destroy life. Have you thought about the ways that we can kill and destroy someone with our words? Cursing? 
negative speech about another person to bring them down, when we, when we curse and say, you moron, you idiot, you loser. I mean, some of us right now in this room can still remember things that were said to us in our youth and they still haunt us. It's like they still have this life of their own that just live on inside of us. Things about our body or our appearance or our character, our intelligence. I remember as a youth pastor, uh, this kid just crying his eyes out with me one time and he just said to me, he said, yeah, my dad just called me a little shithead my whole life. And he's like, I can't get that out of my mind. Slander. Slander is an untruthful statement about a person that harms a person's reputation. I think all of us know someone, or maybe we've been the victim of slander, where a whole reputation is affected because of untruthful things that have been said. And now with these mediums like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, where you can use words as a weapon against somebody and you can send this stuff out to hundreds, thousands. Our words have power. Complaining. I mean, I, I, I have a role of leadership in this church and I've seen firsthand the power of a complaining word. Complainers can hurt a whole organization. A whole church can be affected by complainers. A team, a family, you name it. If there's enough complaining, it's gonna just bring destruction to whatever that thing is. Sarcasm. I mean, some of us think of sarcasm as something that's cute and funny. It's really an immature way of communicating. Again, as a high school pastor, I saw so many students who were so affected by a sarcastic parent where they never felt like they could measure up to what their parents wanted when they sought their parents' approval so desperately because of a parent's sarcasm. Gossip. Gossip is talking behind someone's back. It's saying something about someone that you would never say to their face to someone else or another group of people. Why don't we see the seriousness of this? Jesus is waking us up to that. James calls a destructive tongue poison. What does poison do? It kills. I think Jesus even pushes it further. Jesus puts all of this in the bucket of murder. Or how about let's think about the other side of the coin. Because sadly, the other side of the coin is way too lacking in the world and, and sadly even way too lacking among Christians. Not only do our words have enormous power, power to destroy life, <laughs> Our words have enormous power to heal and to bring life. I mean, think about children. Think about young people and how badly they need compliments, how much their hearts just soak up verbal affirmation from adults. My heart was that way. And I think about my parents and how they just, they ballparked it in this area. 
They believed in me and they expressed it. Coaches, teachers, pastors. In fact, it's football season, so come on, let me talk just a little football. My high school football coach passed away a couple months ago. I had the joy as he was dying of, of a brain tumor and he was in that wheelchair and, 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 and his body was almost completely wasted away of, of, of sitting in his living room, reflecting on a lot of things. And I said, hey coach, one of the things that just, I want you to know this, it changed my life. It was, we just got done playing our first game my senior year. I was a quarterback. I was awful. Awful. <laughs> and we were going into our biggest game of the year against Hudsonville. They had a star quarterback, Eric Elliott. Um, and uh, he's coaching basketball actually there at Hudsonville now. Greg Jordan, you probably know him, right? So um, all conference the year before. My grandma died on Monday. I was a wreck. I was a head case. But last practice, before the game, got the whole team together. He said, I got just one word. We will win tomorrow for the simple reason. Our quarterback is better than theirs. No, he was lying. I mean, it wasn't even close. <laughs> but I believed it in that moment, and that's all that mattered. It's the power of words. Our words are powerful. How often do you believe in somebody? How often do you compliment someone? So much is at stake here. But let me sum up what Jesus is saying. He's saying anger, resentment, bitterness, lashing out towards a brother or sister, it's no small matter. It's on par with murder and it has the same root as murder. And when we do it, something hellish is unleashed and it threatens to destroy us, to imprison us, and to even cut us off from God. He is not messing around. And he loves us too much to not speak the hard truth. He wants disciples who are like him, who don't just think like him, but who see the intrinsic value in, in, in every person and how precious life is. And that we not only walk that out, but these things are in our hearts and we talk like it. Which is why Jesus lays out the path that his disciples are to walk here. And it's a path to healing. How we can be healed and how we can bring healing to our world, and, and God wants to repair this world. He wants to re heal this world, and, and it starts with relationships, which is why Jesus' transforming initiative here is, in verse 24, be reconciled to your brother. I'm gonna stop right there. I think this is one of the hardest commandments in the whole Bible. We've all been on both sides of this. We've, we've all been the one hurt. We've, we've, we've been the one who's caused the hurt. 
before we go any further, too, I want us to see that, that walking like God, walking like Christ, that, that reconciliation is so at their heart. God is a God who wants to make peace. He said the heart of the gospel, it's God reconciling himself, God repairing broken relationships with us. Listen to 2 Corinthians uh, 5, 17 and 19. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here, all of this is from God. And, And what is this new creation about? It's about this. God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God is reconciling the world to himself in Christ. That's the heart of God. We can't be a disciple. We cannot walk as Jesus walked and not be about reconciliation, about repairing broken relationships. This is not optional. It's urgent. It's so urgent that, that Jesus says here, he says, I want you to leave your gift at the, at the altar and I want you to go and be reconciled. On Jesus' day, there weren't altars in every town. The altar was in one place. It was in the temple in Jerusalem. Most Jews would get to this altar one to two times a year and it would be the high point of the year when they would come to Jerusalem to come to this altar with their gift, which was usually a lamb, And God says, when you get to this place and it comes to your mind that there's something wrong in in, in relationship with someone in your life, lay your gift down. And go walk, even if it's two or three days, back home to find that person. Because it matters that much. If you really want to know what God is saying here, he is literally saying, I don't want your worship. I don't want your prayers. I don't want any of that. Until you reconcile. God wants so much for things to be right this way. This is more important than this. We can't have this with God until this is first taken care of. That's why Jesus says, teaches us how to pray. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So now this begs the question, well, well, how do we do this? And there are two fundamental things that have to occur for reconciliation to take place. Repentance and forgiveness. They both begin in the heart. Repentance begins when when I pray, Lord, search my heart. See if there is any offensive way in me. God, have I offended anyone? God, have I wronged anyone? And when God shows me that I've hurt someone, that I've wronged someone, that I'm to take responsibility in that. I'm not to make any excuses. And it begins with what Jesus says here. Leave your gift at the altar and go to that person. And we, and we go to that person not seeking to clear our own name, not, not trying to improve our reputation. We are seeking one thing. It's the healing for the other person. And we humbly tell them, I've wronged you. And we get specific. 
We name the wrong. This is how I've wronged you. I've wronged you by doing this. I've wronged you by saying this. And then we say, I'm really sorry. I am genuinely sorry. And I am committing to never doing that again, to never saying that kind of thing again. And even if we're 20% of the problem and the other person is 80% of the problem, we still have to own it. And we still have to go to those people and repent. There's no reconciliation unless there's repentance. The other fundamental thing for reconciliation to take place is forgiveness. Now, too many people today confuse forgiveness with forgetting. They think forgiveness is I take what's happened to me and I sweep it under the rug as if it's never happened. But listen, that's not forgiveness. Because anytime that, that we are wronged or injured or, or a debt has been incurred, someone has to pay for that. This is why the Bible talks about forgiveness in terms of debts. Every time we sin, someone or something in God's creation is hurt, it's damaged, and someone has to pay for it. And so this is what, one of two things can happen when this happens. If we've been hurt, we can either make that other person pay. We call this payback. The Bible calls it eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, or repaying evil for evil. We can come up with all kind of creative ways to just, that person hurt you. We can come up with creative ways to hurt them back. But here's the deal. When we go that route, a poison enters our soul, a bitterness, grudges. And this poison will poison us. And we will become a poison. And so the other route that Jesus is talking about here is forgiveness. He's talking about it all the time. And forgiveness, too, does begin in a person's heart where, God, search my heart, see if there's any offensive way in me, because just because you feel wrong doesn't always mean you were wrong. I've noticed that so much relational hurt these days can be simply caused by unmet expectations, and sometimes uh, the hurt and pain are caused by our own selfish, unrealistic, unfair expectations that we place on other people. But to actually forgive, instead of making that other person pay, we pay. We pay by releasing them from the debt that they are owed for the hurt that they caused. We absorb that debt into ourselves, the damage, the hurt, the wrong. This is why Dietrich Bonhoeffer said all forgiveness is suffering. He says it feels kind of like a death when we forgive because with any wrong or injury, someone must pay. And to forgive means we are choosing to pay by absorbing that hurt upon ourselves. And people ask me all the time, yeah, I know what I need to do. I need to name the person. 
I need to name the way they hurt me. I need to name what it caused me to feel, and that's all part of this. But how do I get the actual resources to forgive them? And now we're back in the beginning of the sermon. It starts with humility. It starts with being poor in spirit. Proud people can't forgive. Because proud people think, I would have never done that. I could never do what that person did to me. And see, if we don't know that we are sinners saved by God's grace, we'll never be able to forgive. And this is why forgiveness isn't just three simple steps or how to. What we need to forgive is actually a power, a power to come into our life. And the power is this. We have to see what debtors we are. I have to see my own wrong. I have to see... How, how, how I have wronged others. I have to see how I've scarred others. And how that has deeply hurt people and, and hurt aspects of our world. And that takes humility. And then in light of that, I, I, I see God and, and, and I see how God took and he paid my debt. He literally absorbed it. He could have repaid my evil with evil, but rather he reconciled me to himself. In fact, look at what, what Paul continues to say in 1 Corinthians 5. There's a couple of principles here on how God reconciled us to the world. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Let's keep going that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. He didn't repay evil with evil. But God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus absorbed all the debt into himself. The debt of sin, he bore it. And as he did so, he prayed, Father, would you forgive them? And when you see how Jesus did that for you, how he paid your debt, all of it, and you see the massive debt that you owe, and that Christ came to this world to pay it. Forgiving someone actually becomes a joy. Because it's now paying forward the forgiveness that we have experienced in Christ to another person. If anyone claims to be in Christ, he or she must walk as Jesus walked. The altar, the table. Maybe there's someone in the room right now that you need to talk to before you come to the altar.
God, may you fill us with your Holy Spirit. God, just uh, watching a YouTube this, this week by Corey Timboom, who was in a concentration camp, watched her sister killed there. And later in life, one of the guards came up to her and said, I've become a Christian. Would you forgive me? I've experienced God's forgiveness, but I want to experience your forgiveness. In that moment, she said she couldn't. Until she remembered Romans 5, verse 10. By the power of your spirit, we can love as Jesus loved. And she prayed for the power of the spirit to come into her life. And she said, I grabbed his hand. And she said, I forgive you. And she said in that moment, I have never experienced the love of God in such a profound way. God, fill us with your spirit so we could love and walk and talk and forgive as you have forgiven us. In Jesus' name, amen.